I have a friend named Bill who tells stories of his family going back generations. And most of those stories involve drinking and fighting. He tells those stories with no pride. He tells them with honesty. He tells them without valor. And he tells them in a way that he's not lifting up any model of masculinity that he thinks should be shared with the world. Nothing romantic about it. He tells stories of fathers and sons getting drunk and fighting each other. With sometimes those fights ending up in the hospital and sometimes occasionally those fights ending up with people in jail. My friend Bill was aware that he wanted to change especially when he became a dad. And, you see, he married someone who was from a family very, very different, and by very, very different, I mean much, much healthier than his own family. And he said, I want to do this different. He had his own son. And for the first few years of him being a father, he did a pretty good job of kind of keeping his temper in check. challenge was that as his son started to grow up, and kids, as lovely as they are, provide some challenges. And he remembers one day when his son was seven or eight and being particularly mouthy and being particularly difficult. And Bill, who had not yet given up drinking, had had a few. And his son said something that triggered him. And he felt it. He felt something he hadn't felt for quite a while. And he turned to his son, who was annoying the crap out of him, with a fist clenched. He didn't feel like he was going to hit his son, but he wanted to threaten him. And that was disturbing enough to him, that instinct long suppressed. But then seeing his son cower in terror started to break his heart. But you know what really did it? Was that after his son cowered in terror, his son puffed up his chest and stuck his chin out, almost as if he was saying, go ahead, Dad. I dare you to hit me. It was in that moment that my friend Bill's heart broke. And he buried his hands, his head in his hands. And he thought, oh my God, I'm going to pass this on. I don't want to pass this on, but I'm going to pass this on. In that moment, he fully realized his karma. He fully realized all of his own sadness and loss. He fully realized also the beginnings of grace. That moment, he had no idea how he was going to change. All he knew was that everything within him said, I have to change. What was the inheritance that he received from his family? He did not want to be the legacy that he would pass on to his son and to his children. His past was not going to be his future. By the way, when I say karma, I am not talking about just desserts. And I'm not talking about some metaphysical thing. Karma is simply this. There are causes and there are consequences. 
any full realization that I have ever experienced in life or ever seen another person experience in life, any full realization of karma is an opportunity for profound grace, an opportunity to break and change the cycle and realize a new future. This morning, my friends, I am thinking about cycles and about karma and grace and about how to break them and about how difficult that is and also finally how healing grace truly can be. I am, like so many of you, sitting here or standing here rather, heavy of heart with what has happened in Paris and not just Paris but Baghdad and Beirut and struggling to comprehend something that is incomprehensible which is the fathomless evil of this group known as ISIS trying to make sense where I can find little sense. I mean, we know the numbers, many of us do, 129 dead in Paris alone, 50 in Beirut, I'm not sure of the exact number in Baghdad, well over 1,000 more injured when you add them all up, and all within the space of a day or so. All coordinated attacks on everything that is decent and good. And also, if we paid attention the last day or so, we've seen tremendous mercy, tremendous goodness. I don't know the exact words in the French, but that hashtag that showed up in social media, which means open your doors, of people in Paris doing that exactly for each other, inviting strangers in who had been displaced by this awful violence. So yes, there has been tremendous goodness and tremendous grace and tremendous mercy. And yes, God help me. At certain times over this last, not even 48 hours now since the Paris attacks, I have done what I should not do. I have read the comment section. <laughs> and I have seen such vileness, such ugliness, such racism. And more than just once, many times. Let's eliminate them. Let's take their lands. Let's invade and kill them all. And I've also seen something else, which I don't want to attribute just to ugliness or racism. I've seen, and this has been a dominant strain in what I've read, that more war is what we need to settle the score. Now, let me say I'm not a pacifist. I think I get the logic here. But I'm also trying to remember that there can be a different story told at this moment. I am particularly remembering the days and the months right after September 11, 2001. I remember that so many of us, and myself included, were ready to say, yes, it is time to go to war. That this war we're going to fight is going to be a good war, and it's going to change things. That this war is going to make a difference. My friends, I have no idea what the right response 
to Paris, to Baghdad, to Beirut is now, less than 48 hours after Paris. I don't know. What I fear, though, is those who know exactly what the right response is. I remember that time now for September 11th, and this feels a lot like then. And I remember and I regret the trust that I misplaced. Because honestly, everything I'm going to say here today, I'm not sure if it will make a damn bit of difference. It might be a done deal. But I am still feeling I have to say it. I'm not sure of what the response should be. But I am afraid of those who know exactly what they believe the response should be. Yesterday I saw, and I put this on Facebook a number of times, on social media, these words, these words from Shakespeare. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. By the way, Shakespeare was not offering this with rah-rah pom-poms. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. That is a recipe as Shakespeare wrote it for releasing hell upon this earth. I remember I saw that hanging over uh, an overpass on I-93 south of Boston the days right after September 11, 2001. And seeing so many people start to use those words again chills me and it stops me. Because I feel like we're not asking the question or not loudly enough. How has this last decade and a half really worked for us? Do we want more of what has been? More of what has been of the last decade and a half? Of thousands dead, more soldiers of our own, of hundreds of thousands of dead civilians? A war that is seemingly without end? A war that, yes, replaced one murderous tyrant with many, many murderous tyrants. I fear that more of the same will just get us more of the same. And that we're not really stopping to ask that question. I fear that our society right now has all the hallmarks of something that I understand within my own skin very, very well. Addicted thinking. Maybe some of us know how it goes. Ah, this time will be different. This time will be absolutely different. This time I can handle it. This time we'll be more responsible. This time, if we do it right, will be the last time. Or maybe the thinking goes like this. I know this real well. Just one more. Just one more war. Just one more done the right way. And that'll be the last war. And this will take care of all those bad people. This is addicted thinking. And addicted thinking brings suffering. Because it never knows what enough is. Just more and more and more. My friend Bill 
in that moment when he recognized not just the power, the destructive power of his fist, but all the ancestors that were locked into that fist and all the karma, all the causes and consequences that wound up in that fist. That was the moment in which he said, for him, enough is enough. In that fist was all of his conditioning. And in the release of that fist was the realization that he did not need to be the product of everything that led to that fist in the first place. There was something within him in that moment that cried out, I can be different. I don't know how, but I can be free of this. Free from all the causes and conditions that led to here. And not just free from a destructive past that he didn't want to pass on to his son, to his family. But he could be free for the first time in his life to love. To try a new way. When Bill tells that story, and I've heard it multiple times over the years from my friend, it always comes down to one thing. He says, I had to feel what that moment was like and remember it. It took my friend Bill years to recognize his capacity for freedom. He describes that moment of that fist as the most uncomfortable moment of his life because he stayed uncomfortable for months after it. And everything in his experience told him what you must avoid to be strong, to be a man, to be the kind of person that you should be, is you must get rid of discomfort. But he trusted that in that discomfort, in that not knowing, in that seeing what could be but not knowing how to do it yet, was holiness, was goodness, was grace. He had to grow into it. What he found was a larger loving freedom that paradoxically was waiting for him all along. (laughs) This is the greatest and most confounding and most wonderful part of grace in any form is that we evolve to recover who we already are. See, if my friend Bill, for all of his brokenness, for all of that dreadful legacy that he inherited... If some part of him didn't know that things could be different, then he never would have changed. But he knew that something could be. He knew that wholeness was who he already was. And he trusted that. I wish I could say different. But I'm not really under any illusions that this moment is going to be all that different from the moments that have come before but it's my prayer. This is my prayer that this moment we might question our own cultural addicted thinking. This moment bite me a moment of huge collective grief. What would it be like for us just to stay in this place? Just to allow our hearts to be broken And to do nothing but grieve. Nothing but grieve. Share our heartbreak. 
and commit only to this, that maybe we don't want to break any more hearts and not end any more lives. Some of the best stories in the world are about what happens when grief is unrealized or unrecognized. And when I say best, I don't mean happy. I mean good stories because they're powerful stories. It's one of the core stories in the Bible that you've probably been presented to you in this way. The book of Job is an answer to why they're suffering. No. <laughs> the book of Job is about bad questions about suffering and recognizing their bad questions. You at least maybe know a little bit about the book of Job. Job loses everything, is devastated. And at first, the people closest to Job are so overcome by his suffering that they do nothing but sit down with their friend in his misery, in his loss, in his sadness, and weep with him. For days on end, nothing but that. They say not a word. They lower himself and themselves to the level of their friend whose heart is broken. And then they don't. And they start saying things like, as we might say it, God doesn't close a door without opening a window or vice versa, whatever that is. Everything happens for a reason. And Job, to his credit, says, I don't accept those answers. By the way, Job never gets an answer from the God who speaks in the whirlwind, not an answer that we would expect. That book is all about changing and enlarging our consciousness and our perspective, not about getting answers of why. It's about learning to deal with what. That's the lesson of grief, that we are stronger, more lovely, more powerful, not in the obvious ways of power or strength as our world so often defines it, but that we can withstand so much more. I'm kind of feeling some regret this morning that I grew up in the kind of Judaism in which when someone died, we sat Shiva, the grieving ritual, for all about a day, and then we moved on with our lives. <laughs> But the richness of that tradition of sitting Shiva is that we recognize that there is a rupture in life and we sit in that space and we grow big, beautiful hearts that bring us closer to God, to ourselves and to humanity by honoring that grieving. We recognize the wisdom, what Rumi from the tradition that we always think is set against Judaism from Islam, Rumi, who said, be helpless, be dumbfounded, unable to say yes or no. Then a stretcher will come with grace to gather us up. Be helpless. Be dumbfounded. Unable to say yes or no. Then a stretcher with grace will come to gather us up. I'd like to believe that. Truth is, my friends, I'm not sure I do. And I know that my words today will sound to some of you like weakness. The truth is they kind of sound that way to me. Perhaps this is an intolerable weakness. Perhaps this is a weakness that does not make enough space for justice. Like I said, part of me does believe that. And still, I have seen, and I think any of us with eyes can see, how we have defined strength in this last decade and a half. And it does not work. 
It creates more brokenness. It contributes to the causes and the conditions of our karma. On and on and on. Two weeks ago from this pulpit, a little later in the day, I charged our assistant minister, Lee, with this one instruction, explained in a few different ways. Let your ministry break your heart. And these words specifically, I said, there are so many who are threatened with death. The Bible was right about Pharaoh's then and Pharaoh's now. They will not let their hearts break. They harden their hearts. And Lee, your own heart can do nothing to overcome Pharaoh's, but your heartbreaking opens to other hearts broken by Pharaoh's. And as the poet David White puts it, then we can become generous citizens of loss. Rather than just inhabitants of the cities of denial, heading to places that are no better and probably will be in so many ways just the same as the places we want to escape from. And so I ask us, not just reverently, can we let our lives break our hearts? Could this be a moment when we can become generous citizens of loss? I don't know. I do know that the trauma of Paris and Beirut and Baghdad and probably of the many more that could be listed, that trauma isn't grace. That trauma didn't happen for a reason. That trauma breaks the indwelling image of God that is all of us the all that is in all, and the each that unites us all. The grace comes in recognizing that there is real brokenness, that trauma is trauma, and that right now there is a rupture in our lives. More rupture does not heal rupture. Dr. Kin said it. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And so we have a choice. I don't care whether it's naive. It's still a choice. We can replicate the old patterns or we can recover, discover, uncover a timeless truth which is the already established grace of our mutual, inescapable belonging to each other, which leads us in this path. The grace of realizing that we no longer need to participate in the ongoing rebreaking of an already broken world. May we allow ourselves to grieve today, my friends. This is all I ask. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? God of no answers, at least no obvious ones. 
God who confounds and questions and asks us with kindness, interrogate all that we are so certain of that we're not just playing along to an old script. God, rather, of presence, of loving kindness written on our skins, in our eyes, loving kindness indwelling in our hearts. May we learn again to trust you. Trust loving kindness as the original casting of this world, this limitless quality that we are invited day after day after day to take on the form of in our lives. We may not have the answers, but we have our belovedness. Above all else, God, may we trust it today. Amen.